Turn your Bibles tonight to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And uh, we finished off in Colossians chapter 2 last Wednesday uh, with a lot to say. I mean, I tell you what, the Apostle Paul has really um, told the, uh, the Colossians a lot of things, a lot of doctrine uh, that we see uh, in the book of Colossians. Uh, not necessarily uh, any one particular thing that he uh, just points out and likes to ride on, uh, a number of different things that he brings to their attention. Uh, and so when we finish Colossians chapter 2, uh, we see that the, about the middle part of it to the latter part of it, he really focused a whole lot on the things, on how things used to be as far as the Old Testament and the rituals and the calendars and times and the things that the Jewish people used to observe. Uh, and whenever he begins chapter 3, he's talking about the new life in Christ. And so, he, so it's kind of out, out with the old and in with the new. Uh, and so he, uh, in essence, shows us, actually in chapter 2 and verse 17, shows us that all that stuff that was practiced, all that stuff that was done back then that the Jewish, uh, that the Jewish people um, uh, celebrated, so the feasts and all that kind of stuff, that it was just a prefigure. It was just a shadow of things to come. Now, a shadow is something uh, that is uh, not permanent. A shadow is just something that's temporary. Now, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 17... You'll notice he says, which are a shadow of things to come. Uh, and what's he referring back to? He's referring back to verse 16 uh, and talking about uh, the Old Testament laws and the Old Testament practices and the feasts and times and the things that they observed and all that kind of stuff. Because he was trying to get them to see that, listen, you don't need to go back to that old stuff. You know, the, uh, the Lord Jesus has died on the cross. He has uh, now lived, the, God is now living and dwelling inside of his people. The temple has been torn, uh, and uh, the veil of the temple has been torn, which is allowing ac uh, access uh, to God, that everybody has access to the Lord. We don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to go through anybody else. Aren't you glad you don't have to go to anybody else to get to God? You can just pray on your own. And so, you know, there's, uh, so the Apostle Paul was showing the folks that, listen, the Lord's done something new. And so we're doing away with the old. We're coming into the, we're coming into the new. And in verse 17, he's saying, all that stuff was just a shadow. Uh, all that stuff that you used to practice and all that stuff you used to do, it was just a shadow. It was something that was temporary. It wasn't going to hang around forever. Uh, and so he went into a, a list of a, a bunch of other different things. And so we come to chapter 3, and he begins to talk about this new life in Christ. And he says, okay, now that we have done away with all that old stuff, and one, of course, the reasons why he was telling them about all this was because the Judaizers that were coming in saying, you, yeah, you know, you still need to uh, observe the laws and you still need to do this, you still need to do that. And we're really, uh, really putting a lot of laws on people, a lot of weight on people that, that they didn't really, that they didn't need to observe anymore, things they didn't need to do anymore. And so the Apostle Paul says, man, they're making it really hard for you. They're making, they're making living for God difficult. And so... Uh, you know, he says, that ought not be. And he says, listen, we are new creatures in Christ. All that stuff's done. We are now new creatures in the Lord. And so he begins there in chapter 3 uh, with, the, with the idea of uh, illustrating or bringing the people into a new life in Christ. And notice what he says there in verse 1. He says, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now, as the Apostle Paul leaves all that old stuff, and he says, you know what? He says, now you're saved. You've trusted Christ as your personal Savior. All your sins have been forgiven. 
And uh, we are now starting something new. You're starting a new life in the Lord. And he says, and if you've been risen with Christ. In other words, if you've died with the Lord, you've been buried with him in baptism and rose and believe you rose again on the third day and you have died with him uh, and you are now risen with Christ and you have now uh, accepted him as your Savior and you are a new person in the Lord. He says, if you then be risen with Christ, notice what he says. He says, seek those things which are above. Uh, now, let's be honest. Now, in our, in our fleshly life, in our old life, what was it that we were more concerned about? We were more concerned about the world, what we can get out of the world and all these different things, you know, whether it was possessions or money or popularity and fame and fortune, all that different kind of stuff, uh, pleasures and all these different kinds of things. But the Apostle Paul says, you know what? He says, now you're saved. He says, you're a different person now. You have been risen with Christ uh, and he says, and because you are now risen with Christ, there's something different about you, which means there is now a new nature inside of you. Uh, listen, if, when you got saved, if you, if you put all your faith and trust in Jesus, then that means when the moment you got saved, that the Holy Spirit of God came down and lived and indwells inside of you right now. And with that came this, uh, with that came this, uh, uh, this, uh, this new creation, this new creation that the Lord uh, was going to do inside of you, you know. And, and because of that uh, new creation, you have now been given a new nature. And with that new nature, that new nature desires to do things that the old nature didn't desire to do. Listen, before you got saved, you didn't care about living a righteous life, right? I mean, before you got saved, you didn't care about living holy, living pure, and doing what, doing what God said, any of that kind of stuff. You know, you didn't really care about that. However, uh, what you wanted to do is you wanted to do what your flesh wanted to do, what, you, what your flesh desired to do. And, and you was looking out to the world. You was looking at all that kind of stuff. But he says, you know what? He says, now you're saved. And now that you're saved, there should be a different perspective. You know, I think as God's people, we should have a different perspective on life. I think we should have a different perspective on the world uh, that the world does. I think we should view things uh, from a different light than, than how the world does. You know, I think everything that we do, we do under the lens, we do under the lens of the Bible. So everything that we do, we look through the Bible to whatever it is, whether it's our belief or whether it's something that we want to do, whatever it is, we always analyze everything through the scope of God. Does that make sense? You analyze everything through the scope of the Bible. What does God say about it? How does God, how does, uh, how does God feel about it? All these different things. And if we'll do that, then it'll definitely help us to grow and help us to be what we need to be. And so he says, listen, you are now saved. You are now a new creation in Christ. And because you are a new creation in Christ, what you need to do is you, he says uh, there in verse 1, to seek those things which are above. You need to be looking for greater things. He says, listen, whenever you was, when you was lost out here in this world, you wasn't seeking to live right. You wasn't seeking to do right. And, and you were also seeking for things that can't even compare to what God has. I mean, there's so many people out here tonight uh, that they're, they're, they're seeking, they're spending their energy and they're spending their life and they're spending all this time trying to find things that they're, uh, that, that's going to bring them fulfillment and all this kind of stuff that's really not going to bring them nothing compared to what God can give them. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people out here tonight that are looking for peace. But you know what Jesus said? He says, he says, my peace I give you, not as the world giveth, but as I give. And so there's a peace that the world gives, but then there's also a peace that God gives, a peace that passes all understanding. Uh, and so, you know, the world at best only has a, a temporary counterfeit of what it can bring to you. And so the apostle Paul is saying, listen, you are now saved. Don't settle for less. 
Does that make sense? Don't settle for less. Don't settle for what the world's offering you. Don't settle for what the world has. But seek the things that are above because they are greater and they are richer and they are more powerful. All these different things. He says, so now that you're saved, there should be a, a transition in your life. Listen, when you get saved, I just think you, uh, I, I know we're not perfect, uh, but I think when we get saved, I think we ought to, uh, I think there should be a desire within us uh, to want to talk different, act different, and be different than what we used to be and different out here, different in the world. Amen. Uh, I mean, God's called us to be a peculiar people. We should stand out uh, from the world. Uh, and he says, you know what? You, you, this, you, you used to be lost. He says, but now you're saved. Your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. The, the handwriting of ordinance, chapter 2, verse 14, all those things that was written against you was now nailed to the cross. It's all been forgiven. You are now a different person. And so since you are a different person, he says, go out and live like you're a different person and stop living like you used to live. And don't go back to the way you used to be. But now uh, look forward to being a new you. Uh, and so there in verse chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, if you then be risen with Christ, that's just another way of saying, listen, if you're saved, if you're saved, then seek those things which are above. Don't settle for less. I mean, I tell you what, we can, uh, in our life, we'll, we'll, we'll settle for what the devil desires for us to have or what he or she desires for us to have or what they want us to have uh, instead of looking for God's purpose, instead of looking for God's will and all these different things. We will completely settle for less. Uh, and, and, and the Bible says, listen, set your heart on things that are above. He says, seek those things which are above because they are, they are greater. What did the Lord Jesus tell us? Lord Jesus, he told us in the Gospels, he, says, he said to, for us to lay up treasures in heaven. Amen. He said, lay up treasures in heaven. Uh, listen, he said, in other words, the Lord was saying, look for the eternal. Lay up, in, lay up treasures in heaven. Things that are eternal. Things that are going to last. Things that at the end of the day are really going to amount to something. Because I tell you what, we can spend a lot of time and energy and labor and effort putting, putting what we have into something that at the end of the day is going to amount to nothing. You know, understand? I mean, I mean, we can put so much effort, so much, uh, so much into this world. At the end of the day, is, is it going to amount to a hill of beans? I mean, listen, when we get to heaven, God's not going to be interested in, the, in how big we build our kingdom down here. He's going to be interested in how much, how we furthered his kingdom, not how big we made our kingdom. Does that make sense? He's not going to be interested in our popularity in society. He's just going to be interested in whether, we, whether or not we did what he asked us to do. That's what's going to matter. That's what's, going to, that's what's really going to amount to something at the end of the day. Not what we are looking for out here. Not what we're putting so much uh, effort and all that to in out here. But what we're going to do with the Lord. And so he says, seek those things which are above. Uh, uh, notice he says, he says, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. I mean, you can't get no more above than that. I mean, you can't get no greater than that. And so he says, so when he says, seek those things which are above, he went as far, he went as far above as you can get. And so he really set the standard really high. He set the standard really high. He set the standard so high that it's in the throne room of God. He says, that's the standard that I want you to have. That's what you need to do. Seek those things which are above you. Seek the things that are in heaven. Uh, lay up those treasures that are in heaven, as Christ Jesus said. Uh, but he says, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. See, he's sitting on the right hand of God right now. Uh, one of these days, he's not going to sit on the right hand of God. He's going to get up from the right hand of God. He's going to come down here. Amen. Right now, he's sitting on the right hand of God. Uh, we do see, uh, we do see one time in the book of Acts chapter 17 where he did stand up. 
And uh, anybody know, remember where he stood up? Remember whenever uh, um, the very first martyr, the very first Christian martyr that we see in Acts chapter 7, uh, when Stephen was stoned. And as he was uh, drug out, the apostle Paul was there, called Saul then. And he was there, and he was consenting to it, uh, and, gave fa- uh, and gave favor to it. And they, they gave the apostle Paul their garments while they sat there and stoned him uh, half to death. And while, and, and, while, and while Stephen was laying there, the Bible said that he cried out to the Lord to forgive them. And, 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 and whenever he asked the Lord to forgive them, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus stood up. He stood up from his throne. I mean, imagine doing, I mean, think about this. Set your heart on things above. Set your heart on things above. Seek the things which are above, so much so that at the end of the day, we're not worried about, we're not worried about everybody else standing up for us. We're, what we're more concerned about is the Lord. Can we make the Lord Jesus stand on his feet? Can we make Jesus stand on his feet? I don't know about you, but I, that's what matters. That's what matters. Listen, all these Olympic people right now, listen, praise. Uh, they're doing a really good job. Some of them are giving praise to God and, and all of that. But listen, uh, they, they, can make all, they can make the world stand up on their feet. And they can receive medals on the podium and, and all these different things. But what's going to really matter at the end of the day, what's really going to matter in eternity is who stood up, the judges, who stood up? Their family and friends? Who stood up? The crowd? Or who stood up? Jesus. Which one stood up at the end of the day? That's what's going to matter. That's what's going to make the difference. And so the Apostle Paul tells them, he says, listen, you're saved. Stop looking out here into things of the world because none of that stuff out there makes a hill of beans anymore. None of it matters. Seek your heart on the things above. Seek your affections on the things above. Lay for yourselves up treasures in heaven where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Uh, desire in your life. Desire in your heart. To have the Lord Jesus stand on his feet when he looks down at your life. I mean, praise the Lord. Uh, and so there in verse, there in verse 1, uh, we see uh, how he is encouraging us to live now that we are saved. Verse 2, he says, set your affection, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And of course, we see the difference between the eternal and the temporary. The affection has the idea of, uh, of your love, what you put your... Uh, what you put your mind into, what that which it is that you uh, that you adore in your life. He says, "Set your affection on things above. Adore heaven. Adore the Lord. Adore purity and righteousness and holiness. Adore those things. Adore the eternal things, the things that's going to matter." He says, "Not on the things that are the earth, which is of course temporary and sinful and all that kind of stuff." He says, "Keep your mind focused on what really matters." Keep your mind focused on what's going to really amount to something at the end of the day. And what is that? Things that are eternal. Things that are eternal. Not things that are out here on this earth. Not things that are out here in this world. Uh, uh, Seek your uh, affection and your heart on things that are eternal, not temporary. There in verse 3, he says, For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ. He says, you know, you died. You died. uh, The old man died. The old man passed away. And when the old man passed away, he says, uh, the old man passed away, he says, your life is now hid with Christ in God. You are now a part of Christ, and Christ is a part of his Father. And since they're all interconnected, what uh, what does the Bible tell us? Uh, I believe it's in Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 15, maybe, I believe it is. And, And when the Bible says, he that is joined to the Lord is what? One spirit. 
And so he says, you know what? When you died to yourself, you became a part of Christ. And Christ is a part of God. And they are one and the same. And since they are one and the same, when you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God came and lived and dwelt with inside of you. And the book of Ephesians says he did what? He sealed himself inside of you. He sealed himself with inside of you. And so now, so now you are a part of Christ because you died with the Lord and Christ is the Son of God. He is a part of God and they are all one and you are a part of them. So that makes you one with them. And so he says, now that you're saved, now that you're dead to yourself, now that you are in Christ, now that you're in Christ, uh, the Bible says there in verse 4, he says, when Christ who is our life shall appear, then you shall appear with him in glory. He says, man, let me tell you something you ought to get excited about. He says, the fact that you're now saved, the fact that you've, the, uh, that you've come out of your sin, that you accepted Christ as your Savior. He says, what should give you joy in your heart now is the fact that now that you're saved, and he says, you know what, one of these days the Lord Jesus is going to come back. One of these days the Lord Jesus is going to come back there in verse 4, and he says, you know what, he is our life, and he says, and when he shall appear, then you shall appear with him in glory. Listen, one of these days, Lord Jesus is coming back, and when he does, we're going to be there right there with him. Amen? When Lord Jesus comes back, we're going to be right there with him. Uh, and the, listen, the Apostle Paul don't want them to miss out on that. Listen, I don't want you to miss out on that. Uh, I think that's, a glory, that's going to be a glorious time. And he says, listen, you are saved. Set your heart on things above. Think about things above. Set your mind on the things that are above. He said, because one of these days, one of these days, there in verse 4, set your mind on things above. Set your heart on things above. Uh, get away from this temporary stuff of this world because you have, you have died to your flesh. You have died to sin. You're a new creature in Christ. And he said, and, and, and one of the things to celebrate is the fact that Christ, who is our life, uh, when he shall appear, there shall you also appear with him in glory Speaking of the future, one of these days, the Lord Jesus is going to be revealed to all humanity and all humanity is going to see Christ for who he is. And on, and on that day, when that moment comes, when the Lord Jesus comes in his power and the Lord Jesus comes in his glory and the Lord Jesus shows the world just who he is, you want to be a part of that on his side. The Bible says there in verse 4, when Christ, look, notice what he says, when Christ who is our life. He is our life. I mean, I guess you can probably ask maybe some people, you know, what is, what is your life? You know, what, is, what, is your, what makes up your life? What is the biggest part of your life? If we was to break you down and say, okay, what is it that builds your life? What is the, the biggest major part of your life? What, what would it be? For some people that would... Maybe be possessions and wealth. And for some people it would be all different types of things. But the Apostle Paul says, you know what? He says, we're saved. And as God's people, he says, you know what should be our life? You know what should make up our life? You know what should build up our life? He says, our life needs to be Christ. Our life needs to be Christ. He says, when Christ, who is our life? He said, Christ is our life. He is the giver of life. He is the offer of life. The Bible says, he that hath the Son of God hath life. And so the Bible says that he is our life. Listen, the world's not my life. Fame and fortune isn't my life. Possessions and all that the world can give me isn't my life. What is my life? Jesus is my life. And if Jesus is my life, 
then everything else will be seen as minuscule in comparison because when you make God big, everything else is small. I mean, I'm just, I'm just being serious. When you, when, you, when, you, when you magnify God like he needs to be magnified, then everything else is small. You begin to look at the world. When, when the Lord Jesus is magnified in your life, you begin to look at the world and the, things, and the possessions of it and, and all the fame and fortune of it, and you begin to look at it and say, man, what is this compared to God? What is the world compared to God? What is fame and fortune compared to God? What is all these things compared to, compared to the Lord Jesus? But whenever we make God small in our life, everything else seems big. When we make God small in life, when we make the Lord Jesus small in our life, when we make service to him small in our life, then what happens is, is everything else seems like it's so much bigger. So much bigger than Christ. So much bigger than the church. So much bigger than all these different things. But whenever we magnify God and he has that whole place in our heart, and then what happens is, is everything else is small. So he says there in verse 4, when Christ, who is our life? He is our life, every part of our life. He is all that there is. Who is our life when he shall appear, then you shall, uh, then ye shall, uh, then ye also, uh, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Uh, man, what, uh, what something to look forward to that he gave them. And since Christ is our life, and since our anticipation is to be with him in glory, what is it that we need to do? There in verse 5, the Apostle Paul begins to hammer down on some things that, uh, that, um, that identified our former self, that identified our former life. And he says, now that you're saved, and you're on your way to heaven, and you set your heart and your affection on things that are above, and you no longer are earthly-minded, but you're now heavenly-hearted. And now that you're doing all this, and you identify with Christ... And he is your life. What are you going to do? How are you going to live? I mean, if we're going to throw aside the old stuff, what are we, what, what are we going to throw aside? Are we just going to throw aside the, the rituals and we're just going to throw aside uh, uh, the festivities and the fest, all that stuff? We're just going to throw that aside? Well, yeah, well, we are, but that's just outward stuff. You know, that's what outward stuff. That's what Paul dealt with in chapter 2. Now we're going to have to deal with some inward stuff. Because when we're going to start over, we're not just going to get rid of the, the outward stuff. We're going to get rid of the stuff that's on the inside too. So we're going to get rid of the laws and we're going to get rid of all that. We're going to get rid of all that stuff that was a shadow of the Lord Jesus coming. Now that you're saved, we're going to concentrate what's on the inside. And he says, now that you're saved, there's some things that you need to leave behind. Some things you need to make sure that you don't do in your life. And notice what he says there in verse 5. He says, mortify. Mortify. What does mortify mean? It means to kill. It means to, it, it has the idea of really uh, to kill, to lay dead, to lay something dead. There in verse 5, he says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And so he begins to, uh, as he begins to um, give this illustration of members, yes, physical members, you know, your eyes and hands and feet, those different things, that, that works too. But we also, see what he's, we also see what he's looking for as he identifies what these members are. What was it that was a part of our life? Now, let me use this illustration. Now, your hands and your feet and your eyes, are, they're members of your body, right? They are part of your body. But whenever he gives this illustration, when he says mortify these things, he uses kind of like, he, when he says members, he's playing, off the, he's playing off the fact that, yes, your body has parts, but what was attached to you, what was attached to you in your, uh, in your, in your old life? 
Not necessarily your hands and your feet and your eyes and all that stuff, but what was it that was attached to you? What was it that was a part of you? He says that stuff that was a part of you is what you need to slay and kill and get rid of. Does that make sense? And so let us what we see. He says there in verse 5, he says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And what, and what were those things that were attached to us? What, was, what were those things that identified our life before we got saved? What were those things that identified our past self? Our old life before we got saved and we were heathens. The Bible says there in the Bible says there in verse five, he says, "What is it that you need to do? You need to mortify." He says, "Your members, members of what?" They list the very first thing there: fornication. Fornication. What's that? Sex outside marriage. The Bible says, "Let it not be once named amongst you as saints." So anybody that says it's okay for us to have sexual relations outside of the marriage uh, boundaries is uh, that's not true. The Bible shows us that we, uh, we come together as a husband and a wife. And the Bible shows us that. Many different places. We see, we see it right here. And he says, one of the things you need to make sure that you do is, is that you, uh, you come out of this lifestyle of fornication. Because listen, the Gentiles didn't believe that was so. I mean, they had this idea, you can just do whatever you want, fulfill your pleasures or the body. Whatever it is that you want to do, you're all okay. Didn't even matter if you were saved. The Apostle Paul touched that on it in Corinthians. The people had this, idea, this, this belief that you can just live how you want to live, do what you want to do, enjoy your sin. Didn't matter how much or how little. Do whatever you want to do. Even though you say that you're saved, it's okay. But because, you know, the Lord Jesus lives inside of you. He just came to cleanse your soul, your body, something completely different. And so they felt that, well, you can be saved and just let your body enjoy what it wants to enjoy. But that's not how the Bible puts it. But that's what they wanted to believe. And, and listen, I think that's a, that's, I think seems like a, a good consensus of maybe what a lot of people think today. The Bible shows us there in verse, verse 5, he says, one of the things that you need to cut away, one of the things you need to kill out of your life, one of the things you need to get out of your life is to make sure that, uh, is to make sure that this sin, uh, that this sin uh, of fornication isn't in your life. Now that fornication means the Greek word there is pornea, which is where we get the word pornography from. And it has the whole idea, really the whole realm, not of just sex outside of marriage, but has the idea of any kind of sexual activity outside the, the marriage bonds. And under, and you can, put, you can put homosexuality there, you can put all different kinds of things up underneath that. It's an umbrella word. The Bible shows us there in verse 5, he says, one of the things you need to cut away from you, why? Because you're saved. And listen, because you're saved and because you live differently, there's some things that, you're not, that you don't need to do. You need to cut out of your life, you need to get it away, and fornication is one of those things. You need to get that out of your life because God's people don't live that way. Not only did he say fornication, but he also said uncleanness. Now, you know, what's, what's necessarily the idea of uncleanness? Well, uncleanness can be a multitude of things as well. It can be evil thoughts or evil actions or just things that you do to make yourself uh, impure in, uh, in, in life, impure in thought, uh, impure in deed, whatever it is that you do, uh, just being unclean in your life. He says, so you need to cut this stuff away. Whatever you know not to be righteous, whatever you know not to be good. You know, the Bible says to him that uh, knoweth do good and doeth not to him, it's sin. And so whatever it is that it may be, you just cut it out. Listen, if it's going to defile you, if it's going to, uh, if it's a sin against the Lord, whatever it may be, then get it out of the way. Uncleanness, another umbrella word. Uh, notice he also says not only just fornication that we need to cut out, not only the uncleanness, the, uh, the constant thoughts of, of uh, evil thoughts or actions that we may have in our life, but he also says uh, inordinate affection. 
Well, that's very interesting. Now, what does inordinate mean? Now, inordinate means, inordinate has the idea of something that is excessive or something that is too much uh, or, or big. It had the idea of doing something too much, um, practicing something too much or something like that. Inordinate uh, is excessive. That's what the word means. Notice what he says. He says, what you need to cut out of your life not only things that are fornication, uh, uh, uncleanness, but he also says inordinate affection. Now, what exactly is affection? Well, that word affection there has uh, really the kind of same idea of, um, of something that is like a passion of yours, so to speak. So you need to cut out these inordinate, uh, uh, inordinate these excessive, um, excessive passions that you have. Now, is there anything wrong with that being passionate about something? Well, not necessarily. Now, you can be passionate about God. You can be passionate about studying your Bible. You can be passionate about prayer. You can be passionate about doing good things. I mean, you can be passionate about all kinds of good, godly, righteous, holy things. But you can also be passionate about evil things, passionate about doing evil things, which kind of comes where uncleanness is and another one that we're going to take a look at. You can be passionate about doing that stuff. Probably not if you're saved. But, but understand this. Even though you're saved, you're still a sinner. Does that make sense? I mean, even though you're saved, you still have a sin nature that resides in, in, that is in, without, inside of you that you still fight and battle every day. Can I get an amen on that? You still fight it and you battle it every day. Every day and that sin nature that you still have uh, inside of you lets you know that you haven't arrived yet. It lets you know that you still got a lot, to work, a lot of work to do. It lets you know you need to talk to God a little bit more, or maybe a lot more. It lets you know you need to spend more time in church. It lets you know you need to spend uh, more time in, uh, in prayer and with God and reading the Bible and all these different things. But it shows you that you're not perfect. But, the, but there's nothing wrong necessarily with passions until the passion is put in something uh, that is sinful. Now, as I said, you got good passions, and then you got passions you can be about things that are, that, that are sinful, things that are not sinful. And then there are those things, that, just like idolatry, that we can be passionate about that become sinful. They're not sinful in and of themselves, but they become sinful because we're more passionate about that than we are God. Does that make sense? I mean, there's, some, there's a lot of things out here in this world that are not necessarily sinful, but they become sinful because we are overly, excessively passionate more about that than we are about the Lord. And then that becomes idolatry in our life, which is something else that's listed there. It becomes idolatry in our life when we love, listen, when we, when we love something else more than we love God, it becomes idolatry. And the Bible says that's an excessive passion that you have in your life that doesn't need to be there. Doesn't mean that you don't necessarily can be passionate, can be passionate about it still. It just needs that you need to get your priorities straight, get your priorities in order, and make sure that you're more passionate about God. Does that make sense? And so listen, there are lots of people out here in the world today that, uh, that, are, that are excessively, overly passionate about all kinds of things. And they'll do all, and they'll put a lot of time and effort and energy into all kinds of stuff. But when it comes to the house of God, the service of God, the love of God, it all takes a back seat. And the Bible says, listen, whenever that happens, you just need to understand that that is something you need to cut out of your life because it's not right. So not only does he say inordinate affection, but he also says... Uh, evil, uh, evil conspicuance, which is kind of like a, a conspicuance is, is a desire, having evil desires uh, in your heart and in and, and your life. Evilness, desiring to do evil. He says, you know what, this is how you used to live. This is what you used to be. You used to think about being evil and think about doing evil things and think about doing wrong things and you used to uh, maybe think about doing uh, terrible things. Maybe some of you still do. If you do, don't tell me. Talk to God about it. Don't give me a conscience. I don't want to look at you any different. 
But I tell you what, the Bible says, listen, this is how you used to live. This is the kind of life that you used to have. He says, now that you're saved, so this stuff you need to cut out, move it out of your life. And so it says this evil conspicuance, this, this evil desires, these, these, uh, this, this frame of mind that you used to have about doing evil, you know, perhaps even hurting someone or whatever. He says, you know what, you need to get that stuff out of your heart, get that stuff out of your life. And the Bible says there in verse 5, this evil conspicuous, and notice what he also said. He says covetousness, because what does covetousness do? Covetousness is filled with couples with um, jealousy and envy and uh, can bring along bitterness and even hate too. Uh, but desiring what somebody else has to the point that you wish that they didn't have it and you did. Desiring what somebody else has that you say, you know what, I wish they didn't have it, I wish I had it. That, that you spent, that, listen, there's nothing wrong with seeing something that somebody else has got and say, hey, I'd like to have that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm talking we're going to an unhealthy level. I mean, you ever seen something that somebody had you thought, hey, I'd like to have that, that's pretty neat. Listen, ain't nothing wrong with that. Let's be serious. No, no, we're look, we're, what we're focusing on is we're talking about someone who's, who, who, who is analyzing something that some things that somebody else has and says, you know what? I want what they have to such a degree that on the inside you become hateful and you become bitter and you, have, and you, and you become envious of them because they have it and you don't. And that's covetousness. And God says, listen, we don't need that in our life. But he says, you know what? Before you got saved. This is what your life was filled with. This is the kind of person that you were. You, you, you thought evil all the time. You had a covetous heart and, and you were sexually immoral to, to every degree. You were unclean in every way and, and thought about doing wicked things all the time. And uh, he says your, your desires were evil. Your flesh was evil. Your mind was evil. Your morals were evil. And he said, and you said, and he said you had this inordinate affection where you cared about all these other things a whole lot more than what you should have. Your priorities were completely out. He said, and this is the kind of person that you were. Notice what he called them there in verse 6. Well, the latter part of verse 5, he says, uh, he says, covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, verse 6, for which things sake, watch this now, the wrath of God, which things, which things are we talking about? The things that are in verse 5. God is saying, listen, I'm going to bring my wrath upon these folks. He says, for which things, uh, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Now who's a child of disobedience? Someone that's lost. Someone that's lost. Yeah, a child of disobedience is someone that's, that's lost and God says my wrath is coming upon them. And the Bible tells us, the Lord Jesus tells us in the book of John uh, that, um, that, uh, uh, that he that his wrath is uh, upon those, man, I had it right there in the top of my head. But his wrath is coming upon those uh, that are not saved. The Bible also tells us in the, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the New Testament over in the book of Romans, I believe, the Bible says that there is no condemnation to them worshiping Christ Jesus. And so where is God's wrath coming? God's wrath is coming upon the children of disobedience. Now, who is a child of disobedience? A child of disobedience is just, another, is just a, another word of saying that you're a child of the devil, that you're a child of the world, you're a child of disobedience. And God says his wrath is going to come upon those folks, those that are lost, those that are saved. 
He doesn't want his wrath to, but his wrath is going to. And he says, listen, all these things right here in verse 5 describe the kind of person that you were before you got saved. And he says, and since all that kind of stuff describes the kind of person you were before you got saved, that means that as you live your life now for Jesus, then you need to make sure that you cut all that stuff out. Don't you live for it? Don't you practice it? Don't you have nothing to do with it? You stay away from it. Amen? But listen, I know we're all sinners and none of us are perfect and, uh, and sin entices us all. Listen, I get it. But the Bible says that you need to do everything you can to stay away from that mess. The Apostle Paul said himself, the things that I want to do are the things that I don't do and the things that I don't want to do are the things that I do. He had to fight just as you and I. But he didn't, leave him, but he, he didn't say this is my excuse. I'll just, just, because, you know, just because I'm a sinner, you know, uh, this is just who I am. He didn't just leave that as an excuse for his life to live and do what he wanted to do. But he acknowledged that there was a fight there. And the fight was there because he was a new creature in Christ. And because he was a new creature in Christ, there was a desire to want to do right and a desire to want to live right and a desire to be holy and a desire to be righteous that his sinful flesh didn't have before. His sinful flesh, before he got saved, all he thought about was himself. All he thought about was the world. That's all that he thought about. But now that he's saved, there is a desire with him, a new nature that wants to live like Jesus. And that's the way it should be if we're saved. And because we're saved and because we're living like the Lord, uh, he says, uh, this is how you used to live there in verse 6. Uh, so there in verse 6, he says, you just know that people that are living like this, people that live like this in verse 5, they're living like a child of disobedience. They're living like they're not even saved. They're living like they don't know who Jesus is. They're living like their sins have never been forgiven, like they have completely forgot about what God has done. And there in verse 7, he says, In the which, watch this now, he says, In the which ye, ye also walked sometime when you lived in them. But I want you to notice something about verse 7. You see all the past tenses? See all the past tenses there in verse 7? They're not present tenses. They're past tenses because he's describing a former self. He's describing a former life there in verse 7. He says, in the which he also walked. He's not saying in the which you are now also walking. But in the which how you walk. This is how you used to live. This is the way you used to walk. He says, this was what described your life. He says, in the which you also walked. And of course, walking is an action. It's something that you do, something that you are actively participating in. And he says, these are the things that you're actively participating in. You didn't just sit and watch as a spectator, but this is how you lived. You walked this kind of life. There in verse 7, in the which you also walked sometime, sometime, past tense, when, past tense, lived, past tense, in the which you also walked sometime when you lived in now, he said them. He didn't just pinpoint one. Because, listen, more than likely, if you're guilty of one, you're going to be guilty of all of them, more than likely. So he says, this is how you used to live. You weren't just guilty of one of them. You're just guilty of all of them. What does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us about the Ten Commandments. He says, if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all of them. And here in the Bible, here right here in this text, he says, listen, he says, in these things you walked sometime when you lived in them. You weren't just guilty of one thing. You was guilty of all of them. This describes your life. But notice what he says, verse 8. But now, now we're moving from the past to the present. Moving from the past to the present. Notice what he's telling them. He's continuing to tell them to put these things out of their life. But he's moving to the present. He says, now. Notice he didn't say, but tomorrow. But next week, 
But next year, but I tell you what, but, but when the ball drops down again, when the new year is upon us, no, he says, but now ye also put off. In other words, take off. If you're going to put off, you're going to take it off. Kind of like a garment. You put on a jacket, and now I'm going to take this jacket off. He says, but now ye also put off all these. He says, you know what? Verse 5 dealt with a number of different things that you were guilty of. And he said, I'm going to tell you some more things. And you do this now. Don't you wait. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait next week. Make sure you get rid of it. If it's in your life, get it out. And he says, put off all these things. Anger. He says, there's something wrong with uh, something wrong with being mad. No, of course not. There's righteous indignation, and we understand that. Uh, but we're talking about uh, we're talking about an anger that is uh, we're talking about an anger that has an intent to hurt and an intent to harm. We're talking about uh, which kind of goes along with the next one because notice he says anger and wrath. I mean, wrath. We're talking about well, uh, wrath. We're talking about unloading on somebody and and, and not holding anything back. I mean, anger, we're talking about, you know, uh, we're talking about an anger that is, uh, that, that, that is hurtful. Now, you can have righteous indignation. We understand Lord Jesus had that. But this anger, this anger right here is an anger that has the intention and the motive to cause damage and hurt. And he says, you need to get that stuff out of your life. You need to get that stuff out. That anger that is there for the intention to cause the damage and the hurt. You need to get that out. But then he moves it on up a little bit and he says, not just anger, but wrath. He says, because I tell you what, now people can really uh, over exceed their anger and get into this place of wrath where we are now dealing with hate and can get into the place of murder because that's what, um, because that's what hate is. Hate is the father of murder. Uh, normally, folks are killed because they are hated. Normally. The Bible says, but now you also put off all these anger, wrath. Anger and wrath. And the Bible says malice. Malice. You say, what is malice? Malice has, it, it's coupled with anger and wrath. But malice is... Moving to do something very violent and doing it willfully and not really and with no regret necessarily. I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it willfully knowing that I shouldn't but I'm going to do it anyway. And the intent is to cause harm. The intent is to hurt. The intent is to cause pain. And uh, the intent is to get revenge. The intent is to get even. Uh, the intent is to be evil and to do it purposefully. And God says get that stuff out. You don't need that stuff in your life. But now ye put off all these anger, wrath, malice, and then blasphemy. Blasphemy. What, what is necessary? What is blasphemy? Well, it's, uh, it's insulting and disrespecting. Uh, the technical term would be to insult and disrespect deity, but there's only one deity, and that's God. He's the only God that there is. And so blasphemy is to say something that is derogatory or insulting to Christ, insulting to God himself. Uh, that is what blasphemy is, insulting God. The Bible says not just not only blasphemy, but he also says filthy communication out of your mouth. And what would that be? Well, that would be, that would be swearing and cussing and... Uh, rude content of your language and all that kind of stuff that people talk about. And he says uh, all this stuff that, uh, that isn't fitting for God's people to, uh, to mention and speak of. 
Uh, you know, the Bible even talks about there, there are sinful things that the world does that, don't even, that God's people don't even need to, be, don't even need to talk about. It's so bad. Um, but he says, filthy communication that comes out of your mouth. He says, you know what, this doesn't, this doesn't give the impression that you're saved whenever you talk like this out in front of everyone. Notice this, verse 9. He says, lie not one to another. So we see the, a lying lifestyle. He says, you don't need that, doesn't need to be a part of your life. Lie not one to another, seeing, watch this now, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. And so there in verse 5, what did we really look at? We looked at a lot of deeds that the body did. And then when we got to verse, uh, then when we got to verse, uh, verse 8 and 9, we're looking at the things, the things that the inner part of the body does, like your mind and your imagination and your emotions and all that stuff. Now, granted, your body and your mind, they're interconnected. I get that. But the Apostle Paul was just trying to extract and say, listen, when you practice these things in your life, you need, to, you need to get that stuff away. So we dealt with the things that we do in the body. And then when you get down to verses 8 and 9, he begins to deal with the things that's on the inside. That you need to get rid of that stuff. Because listen, God doesn't just want a vessel that's clean on the outside. He wants a vessel that's clean on the inside too. Amen? He wants the vessel clean all together, the outside and the inside. I mean, if you went and bought you a new car... You went and bought you a new car and it looked good on the outside and you got on the inside and it was full of mud and had dead bugs in it and rats everywhere and um, I mean just all just a mess and just all kinds of junk in there. Would you want it? Would you want to get it in and then use it? But the outside's so clean. I mean the outside's fantastic. It looks so good. I mean it's wax, it's polished, ain't no dirt on the tires, everything looks just fine. You say, no, I wouldn't want to do something like that. I want the inside to be clean too. Well, why would we think God wants to be in this vessel and it be any other way? God's not interested in just right, God's not interested in just looking at a pretty vessel. God wants to be in a pretty vessel. Does that make sense? Yeah. You wouldn't drink out of a dirty cup. I wouldn't either. The Bible says there, we need to hurry up so I can get down to verse, so I can get down to verse 11. Now, the Bible says. Lie not to one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, verse 10, and have put on the new man. You've taken off. That's what verse 8. You've put off these things. You've taken off the old man. You've taken off those garments. You are now putting on new garments. Verse 10. You've put, and you've put on the new man, which is what? Renewed in knowledge. After the image of him that created him. Talking about Jesus. And so it says when you get saved, you now have a, a, a new perspective. You now have a new mind. You now have a new outlook. You now have a, you have a new nature that is doing what? Wants to know more about the one that saved him. Wants to know more about the one that created him. It wants to every day be more conformed into his image. You see that there in verse 10? In verse 11, he says, wherefore, he says, where there is neither Greek. Now watch this now. This is good stuff. Verse 11, this is good. He says, watch this now, because listen, whenever we are, the, uh, we're created in him. We're, we are created in him. We are reborn in him. We have a new nature within us. He gets to verse 11. He says, where, where there is neither. Where, where, where there is is talking about our relationship in Jesus, where we are at in Christ. In Christ, notice he says, listen now, in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, 
barbarian or Scythian, bond or free. But Christ is all and in all. You know what he says? He says, when it comes to Jesus, there ain't nobody any better or any greater than anybody else. Jesus is in all of us. If you're saved, it don't matter if you're black. It don't matter if you're white. It don't matter if you're Hispanic. It don't matter if you're rich. It don't matter if you're poor. It, none of that makes any difference. It don't matter if you're from America. It don't matter if you're from Russia or Tokyo or wherever it is that you're from. None of that makes any difference. If you're saved, then Christ is in all of us. Nobody is any better than anybody else because he's no respecter of persons. So who is it that causes the divide there in verse 11? The Bible says, the Bible says uh, in Christ, there's not, there, there's, there is neither Greek nor Jew. Those walls have been taken down. Who is it that builds the walls between people? People do. Not Jesus. Listen, it ain't God that builds a wall between people. Listen, the world out here, the sinful world out here, energized by the devil himself, builds walls between people. We see that going on right now. People thinking they're better than everybody else. Whether it's a white man thinks he's better than a black man, black man thinks he's better than a white man, or any of the other combinations that you got out there and all over the above. Everybody thinks to some degree that somebody's better than somebody else. And, they, and the Bible says that, listen, people separate themselves. The Greeks separate themselves from the Jews and vice versa. Uh, the circumcision from the uncircumcision. The barbarians from the other people. The bond and the free. Everybody separates themselves. And God says, listen, if you're saved, then you're all the same. And I live and dwell in every single one of you. Ain't none in one of you no better than anybody. Because my blood died to save all of you. And so... There in verse 11, the Apostle Paul, in essence, tells them, don't you live like you're better than anybody else because you're not. Don't you think you're better than anybody else because you're not. Jesus lives in us all if we're saved. We all have the same access to God. We all have the same power of God if we want it. We, we, we all have it. Bond or free, no matter who you are. We'll stop there. All right. We'll begin in verse 12. We'll get to... Next Wednesday. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much once again for your love and grace. Lord, I thank you for the patience of the people. Lord, I pray that you'd help them and help me, Lord, as, uh, as I preach. And Lord, help us all to get gleaned from your word, what, what you would have us to hear. Lord, that you would help us to grow. Help us to see what you need us to see. Lord, I pray that you'd bless our time here together. and. Lord, as we get ready to leave tonight, that you'd bless our, the rest of our week. God, that you keep everybody healthy. Uh, Lord, you keep everybody safe. And you'd bring us back to our next appointed time on Sunday. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.